I don't know if you heard, but my Lush Life cocktail tours of Soho are thrilling the masses. Check out LushLifeCocktailTours.com for more information. But rest assured, on each tour, you'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London, all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. You can find tickets on the website LushLifeCocktailTours.com. Don't miss this sophisticated romp through Soho. Hope to see you there. Now let's get on with the show. Our guest today is rewriting the English dictionary. No longer will it's just small beer mean something unimportant. From now on, small beer means just that, small beer. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Felix James, co-founder of Small Beer Brew Company here in London, gave me a history lesson on small beer, a lower ABV version of beer that was drunk by most men, women, and children alike as early as Chaucer and Shakespeare's time. Water could kill you then, so small beer it was. Even George Washington had his own recipe. One day after work, Felix longed for a great beer that wouldn't leave him unable to drive home. This thought kept repeating itself until he and his partner decided it was time to fill that gap in the market and create their own. Now, how does this fit into season four of the classic collection? Well, if Chaucer and Shakespeare were drinking it, then it's a classic in my book. Absolutely. So I actually grew up in Shropshire, um, which is in the West Midlands. Uh, and it is um, fairly close to the Welsh border. And I actually spent a lot of my family, uh, my sort of childhood, my family moments sort of in, in Wales, um, which is a beautiful place. Uh, and then, but at a very early age, uh, so at the age of nine, um, I moved to Berlin with my mother uh, and lived in Berlin for seven years. And then I moved to New York. Wait, wait, so how old were you when you were in Berlin? So from the age of nine to sixteen. So just starting to be beer drinking years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and the, the fabulous thing about Germany is that you're allowed to drink beer when you're sixteen. They have a very very sort of healthy relationship with alcohol. I think where um, it is accepted, and this is sort of, I think this is this is kind of maybe applies to the whole of the continent. Is that um, beer is something that isn't just kind of consumed to get drunk. It's something that people enjoy, and they, you know, and, they, and it's sort of it's 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 woven into the fabric of life. And so, um, so in Germany, it's very much a given that when you're 16 years old, you're allowed to buy beer, you're allowed to drink beer, you can do whatever you like um, with beer, uh, but you can't drink anything stronger than 10. percent So effectively, it puts you out of drinking strong wine and mm-hmm. spirits, which I think is quite clever. Do you remember drinking beer then? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, you know, my first experience of drinking beer was in France on holiday as a, uh, with, with my dad. And I was, I mean, I was four or five years old and I had a little sip of his beer. Um, and that actually has provided inspiration, I think, to why we, we now bottle our beer in little stubby bottles. Um, so they're still the same volume as, as, as other long neck bottles, but they just have this... For me, this kind of nostalgic appeal where we, you know, we think as Brits that stubby bottles mean continental beer. And so that, to me, just means holiday. 
you know, means <laughs> I love ha- having fun, enjoying yourself, being in the sun, drinking a nice cold, refreshing beer. So you moved from a country that thinks, you know, drinking beer at 16 is fine to the USA. Exactly, yeah. Where, <laughs> where you where can't actually, carry around a bottle. I probably consumed more beer in the USA than I did in, in Germany um, <laughs> in 40-ounce bottles. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and I spent my two years there... Um, between the ages of 16 and 18 constantly with black crosses all over my hands from from trying to spend as much time in bars as possible and then so you must have looked older or you had a fake ID obviously no no, I just I just so I mean you're allowed in as long as you're not drinking and as long as you have a a black cross but then you know yeah I used to hang out with my sister's friends so the older sister obviously that's it Uh and they said just give them a beer yeah um, yeah. So after the US, were you? Did you come back to? I did. The yeah. UK? So I came back to the UK and um, with the sole intention of going to university, um, but also uh, so I studied biology, and during that time I was also very much sort of heavily involved in food in in London, and so I was working at Borough Market um, at eighteen sell, selling food. Yeah. So young. Yeah, mm. um, and I was also cooking food in Shoreditch and uh, a little shop, um, and so plus going to school at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was a pretty full-on week actually. I had sort of Monday to Friday at university, and then Saturday I was working um, at Borough Market, and Sunday in the shop. So it was this kind of full, full-on lifestyle, which I don't think I've ever let go of. <laughs> Quite so. I keep saying to myself, you know, one day. You know, there will be a, a moment where I stand still for a bit, but it is—it's—it's it's not for now. No. Now, when you were working, did you have to work on the weekends, or was this something that you really wanted to do? It or was. Both? It was certainly it was supplementing mm-hmm. the income, um, uh, but it was uh, so it was it was it was pretty 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 much a necessity. Um, but it was also something that I loved. I mean, it was because you could have done anything, and you chose to work. Absolutely. In food. In food. I mean, food is just, you know, it is so important for our lives. And I think, uh, I think it's important for us to understand that 100 years ago, you know, 80% of our income would have gone on food. Mm-hmm. And now, these days, it's kind of, it's less than 10%. And at the time, I think the quality of food just wasn't quite um, appreciated as it is today. And there's been certainly a, a renaissance in... Uh, in eating and there's been a renaissance in drinks um, and I think that that's kind of paved the way and allowed us now to 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 set up what we have done here um, at Small B. Do you think your love of or your want to work want wish to work on with food um, came from living in different countries and eating different things or did did you have a family who loved guess, to cook? Yeah I guess so from a um, I, I actually spent the, the couple of years that I was in New York, I spent very, very close to food. Um, uh, living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you kind of you almost can't get away from it. Um, and my my mother actually, both of my parents are architects, so my mother had spent a lot of time away from home traveling, um, and so I was kind of left on my own. And she taught me. My parents used to run a restaurant uh, before I was born. Um, and so she taught me some very simple dishes to kind of look after myself while she was gone. Uh, and so that was, you know, it was a huge passion of mine, you know, mm-hmm. cooking food. But then also getting into making these 
these sort of fermented things that you could you could start and then you could leave and you could come back to and find what had happened. It was kind of it was all quite it was a scientific appreciation for food, and so uh, I remember at the age of four or five again uh, making uh, little yeast cultures in milk bottles um, and putting balloons over the top of the milk bottle and seeing the balloon being blown up by the by the carbon dioxide uh, being produced, and that just fascinated me. And so kind of translating that into actually taking home cabbages from the market and chopping them up and making them into sauerkraut. Um, Which you would have had, of course, in in Germany. Totally, yeah, 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 absolutely. And so that was a... But it was such an amazing process that you could just take one vegetable, add salt. I mean, it is by far the easiest recipe, the simplest recipe. There are only two ingredients, cabbage and salt. And yet so much happens as a result of that. I mean, you know, the salt pulls the water out. The water allows this perfect aqueous environment for these bacteria to take hold. And then all of a sudden you've got this kind of lactic fermentation. You know, who, who would have thought? Um, and that, in a way, shows me, you know, the simplicity of that gives me confidence in the fact that, you know, now I understand how beer was made so many thousands of years ago when people always say, you know, who... Who thought of actually putting all these ingredients together and boiling them up and going through this whole mashing process? I mean, it's very involved, but actually, you know, the the simplicity of fermentation is just that you leave something until it starts fermenting, and then some fermentations taste better than others. Uh Did that lead you to biology, you think? So um, I... I, I was definitely um, food was definitely a yeah it was it was a it was a fundamental part of me understanding biology and I think my my very first real understanding that I would have a life being a biologist was when I was sort of 13 14 years old in Berlin and again learning about the the kind of gastrointestinal tract and the, you know and the way that we consume food and, and what happens and nutrition was was extremely important to me and mm-hmm. I think you know, when you learn about uh, the calorific content of food and the and the way that we process food and, and metabolize it and, and, and assimilate it into our bodies, that was that was fascinating to me as well. So it's kind of, I guess, it was a it was always a scientific appreciation for food that, that I enjoyed, and that those two things, food and science, come together so beautifully with beer, because you can you can approach brewing like a um, like a chef you can basically spend the time in your kitchen developing new recipes and you can think of it just as a combination of flavors um, but at some stage you're going to also have to appreciate that in order to get somewhere that you want to go you have to use the, t- the scientific method or at least for me that's kind of that's the that that's the only way that I've found that you can really achieve success in brewing is to really get behind the science of it so did you, with this you know, biology degree in hand, did you go right into brewing? I was, uh, it, was, it was before I had the degree in hand. It was certainly, um, uh, it was, I mean, literally from the outset, from my first couple of days of university, I was already, I was brewing at home. I was home brewing throughout university. So um, I had actually found this, this mad video of, of these couple of guys in northwest Arkansas brewing up a six-pack of beer. And I just didn't believe that you could make a six-pack of beer. I mean, to me, beer was something that was made on a mass scale in these huge factories. Mm. Nobody ever saw it was all behind closed doors. And all of a sudden, you know, 
they had allowed me to find out that actually it was something that, that, it, that everybody can do. And so it was, you know, a matter of days, you know, I bought all the raw materials and I just started brewing literally on, you know, on my hob in the kitchen. Um, made, uh, made a small batch, my, my first homebrewed batch of beer, um, which was a beautiful Belgian beer. And luckily it went right because that, that just immediately spurred me on. And so, you know, and I thought... I love that you got it right the first time. This? Well, I did. My, my second batch wasn't quite as... Wasn't quite, I mean, maybe You're like, was, this is easy. Maybe it was beginner's luck. Um, but then since then, I've kind of... I've realized that there are so many things that you really, you know, you do need to get right. And so it's just been a... Uh, it's been an appreciation for brewing. I never quite saw myself just being a brewer. <laughs> it was kind of... It was a, just a part of this of this kind of world of fermented foods. And I still, you know, in my free time, I, I love to spend time cooking and... Uh, and making food and, and, and making cocktails and appreciating flavor and, and building. Uh, so I you know, built a pizza oven and, I, uh, and I, I, I love to spend time with my family on the weekends making pizza um, and, and other things in the pizza oven, beautiful steaks and all sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. so you graduated. Yes. And did you think that the drinks industry was... No, absolutely you? not. I, I, I had this vision of setting up a warehouse of food, um, and in my uh, and I, I think in order to do that, I knew that I needed some funds, and so I I latched onto a job which I found completely by mistake, uh, which was at a brewery, and I didn't even know which brewery it was. And at the time, I had in my mind that it might be some beautiful little microbrewery. Uh, it was just around the time that, that sort of the very first microbreweries were popping up in London. Um, and, uh, and it turned out to be Anheuser Busch, uh, who make Budweiser. So How could was, you get that so wrong? It was a, um, well, it, it was just through an agent. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I heard from some people gossiping in the, in the library at university. They were talking about a job in a brewery and they said, ah, oh, you know, it's ridiculous. Who would want a job in a brewery? And I stuck my head in and went, me, I want a job in a brewery. So and it turned the out the biggest brewery it just happened in the to world. be the biggest brewery in the world. Exactly. So, um, but that uh, was, I mean, that was fantastic. Actually, I didn't know my luck at the time because working for Anheuser Busch, they had such a dedication to quality and to that scientific method, to really genuinely making things as consistently. I mean, okay, some people might not like the taste of Budweiser, they think it's bland, but hey, you know what, it's consistently bland. Um, and, and it doesn't matter actually what you're producing, if you use that amount of, um, I mean, they, you know, they always said at the time that they were the most expensive beer to brew, and, and somehow, you know, I can't quite put that together in terms of the raw materials that they used and everything, but the... But the amount of effort that they put in, and the, you know the, the laboratory functions, and the you know all the, the quality control and everything was just well. Fun. When you open a bottle, yeah, it better taste the same every time, every single time. Yeah, and so that gave me actually one. So from you know from progressing from Anheuser Busch, and I and I've worked for sort of smaller and smaller businesses. I now understand this this balance in business between you know, what the big guys do, which is kind of getting it right. Because, mm-hmm. hey, after all, they're the guys that have survived, you know, for, for a long time and, 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 and grown up to be what they are. And so they didn't do that from, from doing things wrong. I mean, they, you know, they're certainly getting something right. 
versus the smaller businesses that can be more nimble um, and that have uh, that have a better you know where as a as a single person in that business you can have a much better understanding of the entire business as a whole. Um, in a bigger business, sometimes you know, particularly mm-hmm. if you're lower down, you kind of feel like you're never going to understand the entire business. Right. And so there's this kind of there's this balance. I think it's I'm I'm very happy that I've worked in both bigger and smaller businesses, but I think moving down from bigger to smaller has been the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then you can take what you've learned um, in, those, in those bigger businesses, use that kind of structure um, as, a, as a tool to understand what you're going towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not to say that we will be the next Anheuser-Busch, I think. <laughs> I think there are, <laughs> know, there are other ways of doing things. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but no, I, I think, you know, we certainly apply that, that rigor um, to everything that we do here, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, has stood us in good stead. Of course. Now, you said you worked for some smaller, you've been going down in scale. Yeah, so, so from after that Anheuser-Busch experience. Anheuser-Busch was actually, um, so in 2008, uh, they were taken over by, uh, 2009, they, they were taken over by InBev. Um, and so AB InBev is now, you know, the, the biggest sort of beer conglomerate in the world. So they, they turned from a, a sort of family-run business into part of this much bigger machine. Mm. Um, and I left the business uh, shortly afterwards, um, and I, I just hopped across the river um, from from Mortlake near Richmond uh, up to Fuller's Brewery in Chiswick. Um, and so I, I worked at Fuller's, uh, which is this amazing regional brewery, you know, London-based brewery with this uh, with this very rich history. Um, they've been going for 174 right. years. Um, and they were they were just bought out actually by Asahi uh, around Christmas time. But uh, but they were at the time still very much a, a sort of family run traditional uh, brewery. And just making that step it was a big step in terms of culture, in terms of you know that sort of scientific approach and everything. Everything became a little bit more rounded, a little bit more. Um, I sort of felt like I was part of the historical process rather than just the scientific process. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a big learning for me. Um, so what were you doing for them? So that allowed me to really jump up in terms of the kind of up the managerial mm-hmm. chain. And, and uh, so the majority of time that I was there, I was actually working in production, but on the packaging side. So running bottling line, running the, the, the keg and cask lines and, and, and managing the, the, that, that sort of packaging process of the beer. But that again is you know people think of brewing as just as as work production as basically producing this unfermented beer um but the the packaging beer is by far the most difficult part of the entire process and so that as as well just gave me a, a wonderful understanding and foundation and now allows me to understand very very uh closely what i need to know and how i you know whether i can trust people to then take the beer that we produce today and put that into package, um, which it doesn't seem doesn't sound very glamorous, but it is absolutely no. crucial. I mean, no. it's you know, there's no there's no point in making a great beer if you then you know if it ends up not tasting so great once it's got into a bottle or into a keg, uh, it's gone to a pub, you know, it's been served. It has to taste perfect when whoever is drinking it drinks it. That's the that's the key. 
Um, and so it doesn't matter how much love you put in at the beginning, uh, there's always the potential for that to be completely destroyed. Um, and so for us, that's, that's, that is crucial that you know, we understand that full kind of life cycle of that beer. Well, working at one of these big companies and starting your own mm. is a huge leap. Yeah, very, very, very different. <laughs> when did you feel the, you know, the passion to, to say, mm. okay, I think I'm going to do my own thing? So I think um, throughout that entire process, when you're, you know, when I joined Anheuser-Busch, I was excited, I was young, you know, I, I was still sort of nimble in my mind enough to kind of think, well, I could start a business any moment. And it certainly was always a, an intention of mine that at some stage I would start a business. Now, once I moved on to Fuller's, I started jumping up the chain, you know, all of a sudden there was salary and there were bonuses and there were, you know, it was, I had a car and a mortgage and a family, you know, I, uh, I got married quite young and, and, and I've now got two kids um, and it was uh, it was just inconceivable then at that time that I would be able to jump out of a uh, of, of this stable mm-hmm. situation into something so daring as to set up a brewery. Um, but it was from I actually moved from uh, from Fuller's. So after four, uh, five and a half years at Fuller's, I moved just down the road to a distillery um, to Sipsmith, and that is where I met my business partner James. Um, and we we used to go to the pub together um, and enjoy you know in, in, enjoy some beers after work. You know you work in a distillery all day. Uh, it's all about gin. That's the whole thing. Well, you know you get down to the pub. The first thing that you want is a beer. <laughs> so we uh, were you ever tempted to just stay in the spirit world, as we say? Oh, it's very tempting. Spirits <laughs> is is. Um, not, not just because, you know, because I love spirits, and I, and I do actually, I really gained a huge appreciation for spirits. I remember when, when, I, first, um, when I first got the job at Sipsmith, I had probably, I drank gin maybe, you know, five times in my entire life. It wasn't even, you know, it just wasn't something that, that I'd really touched upon at all. Um, and it was more the lure of this incredible job, you know, working at the top of a small business um, as the head of operations within Sipsmith. Just, you know, it was just this incredible opportunity uh, that, that, that lured me in. But it was, I remember speaking to Fairfax, uh, one of the founders on the phone, he said, congratulations, you've got the job. Go and celebrate, go and have a martini. And I kind of came off the phone and I was like, you know, What's he on about? What have I done? (laughs) What's a martini? You know, what is this all about? Did you ever feel that you had a beer? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, no. no. I feel. Oh my god! I'm going to step into a different world. Completely, and I still feel the same about about the two. Is that if you know if, if if we wanted to make money as a business, if we wanted global success, if we wanted it all to be you know easy and straightforward and wonderful, we'd have stuck. In the, you know, we've, we'd have stayed in the world of spirits. Beer, it's just madness. It is mm-hmm. completely nuts. You know, you have to, you really, really have to know what you're doing with beer. It's technically very, very difficult to make good beer, even at four or five percent alcohol. I'm saying that to all the spirit lovers, it is very difficult to make a good <laughs> spirit well. Not everyone can make a bathtub gin. I don't mean as in in your yeah. bathtub, not 
the brand of bathtub. Sure. Sorry. You, no, you, you keep telling yourself that. That's fine. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is difficult. Oh, boy, the it's, trolls. It's difficult until, <laughs> until you get into the world uh, of fear and then you realize uh, really how difficult uh-huh. it is. But it's a, um, no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm simplifying. We are cheesy. But it was, uh, no, beer, I did, I did feel like I'd given up on beer and I, I felt bad actually. And, and I, I, I always appreciated going back to Fuller's and seeing my friends there and kind of, and actually understanding the hardships that they were in. And they sort of, they saw me in this, in this, uh, um, uh, in this sort of, you know, high up world on my on my on my gin you know on my gin mountain um but it's uh no no actually being at sipsmith taught me other things um taught me a lot about running a small business um i mean being so close to the top of the business you really really understood actually how businesses certainly in that's at that stage of their life cycle i mean sipsmith when i joined sipsmith um it was just you know five years old as a business, and uh, and businesses are, are really you know it's not just all about money and, uh, and 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 sort of going to work in a suit. It can be exciting, and and you can work within this really close knit team. It's almost like taking on a new family, um, and developing a culture and developing uh, a brand and what that means. You know, I, I think before then. My understanding of business was very much, well, this is the world of operations. And the marketing people are these airy-fairy people who have no understanding of, of, of really what, you know, of what we do. Um, and Sipsmith really taught me, um, even though I have a background in operations, I, I know now that, you know, a, that a drinks brand is nothing without the brand itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it, it doesn't matter how good your your liquid is, whether you're making beer or gin or, or wine or whatever, it can be the very, very best in the world. And yet, if nobody knows that it exists, then that's such a shame. Or the know? story of it. You Absolutely. know, the, that's why we're here talking to you. There's a story behind small beer. Yeah. And that makes you choose the small beer as opposed to any other beer out there because you know the story. Yeah. They've heard this, hopefully. And, or, you know, it's definitely part of the story. There are 800 gins out there. Why does someone choose one over the other? It's the story of the gin, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. And so I think that was something where, at that stage, I'd almost lost the, the ability to think about setting up a new business. Mm-hmm. Until this point where... James and I are sat in a pub and, and actually even before we sat down we're, we're looking at the pump clips and subconsciously we're both thinking the same thing that I think a lot of people are thinking when they walk into a pub you know what, I really, really want a beer but what I don't want is all the effects that come after that so whether I'm going home to my family I want to spend some, some time you know, some, some quality time with them I want to have dinner with them whether I have to get up early the next morning uh, to present to the boss, whether I am the boss, whether it's, you know, there are so many reasons why you shouldn't drink alcohol. And yet, all you want is a beer. How, you know, how hard can it be? Does it really have to be this sort of, um, this, this, this frustration, this, this sort of, uh, this trouble every time you go to the bar and you're just, so for us, 
I didn't want to be drinking non-alcoholic beer. I didn't want to be sat there with a uh, with a with a lime cordial. It was the whole, you know, the whole process, the experience of drinking a beer is so wonderful. You get the immediate refreshment, you know, the aroma of the hops. It's such a beautiful, delicate experience, um, and it can bring back memories. You know, we know that. Uh, that our senses and particularly our smell is so closely associated with our memories and, and mm-hmm. with pleasure and with joy and you know with so many of our emotions and so I, I yearn for that experience and yet what I don't yearn for is is all the nonsense that then follows um, and non-alcoholic beer just wasn't an option for us for two reasons one was that it didn't provide any of that sort of slightly you know the alcohol gives you uh it just takes the edge off a little bit allows you to kind of sit back socialize and sometimes you need that mental capacity in order to come up with those eureka moments Mm -hmm. you know if you're constantly just running on this treadmill your entire life you uh you never quite step back and look at everything and then you don't realize what's right in front of you um and so we wanted just a little bit of alcohol. We didn't want too much alcohol, but then also non-alcoholic beer could never quite match up in terms of flavor. Mm-hmm. It was always lacking. Um, and this is very much down to the process. You know, you end up, uh, if you're removing alcohol, you end up stripping out flavor, um, either through reverse osmosis or through distillation. Um, uh, you know, distillates are beautiful. There's this amazing thing in nature where when you distill a spirit, you actually end up, the distillate is, just happens to be the most, uh, you know, this most wonderful concoction of all the wonderful things that you've put into the still. You get all the floral aromas, the citrusy aromas, um, all those, those amazing, you know, that, that combination of, of, of all of the, the best things. If you try what's left in the still, uh, you know the kind of the dregs, the bottoms that are left in the still. They are all the things that you don't really mm-hmm. want to be tasting. Now, when you're making non-alcoholic beer, if you distill the alcohol off, what you're left with in the still is your non-alcoholic beer. All the all the wonders, all the the most the most delicate, fantastic flavors that come from hops, for example, are all incredibly volatile. Uh, and this is why. You know, if, if you don't drink beer fresh, if you leave it for, for a year or two before you drink it, you lose a lot of those fresh aromas. Um, and freshness is something that is important in mm-hmm. beer. Uh, and so there are some beers that can age, you know, and they, and they develop more sort of sh- sherry or brandy characteristics. But with, a, with that experience of just sitting back and having a great beer after work, I think it's got to be a refreshing one. Um, and, and you lose all those fresh flavors into your distillate. Effectively. So you end up with this amazing beer spirit that nobody ever drinks. <laughs> um, and, uh, but what you are drinking is, is the kind of non-alcoholic stuff that's left behind, which is just not that fun. Well, so, I assume that wasn't all in that, the one chat over the beer. No, no the, the <laughs> one chat over the beer was, kind of, uh. was just this, it was, a, it, was a, it was a frustration. It was kind of, how is it possible that nobody is making a 2 or 3% beer you know, something that we can just drink and actually it's not going to get us drunk. Um, we're, we're not going to get in trouble in all these other parts of our lives. Um, 
and and yet we can still enjoy the experience. Was that the eureka moment when you looked at each other and said, let's try? It was, I mean, looking back on it, I think romantically speaking, yes, that could have been the eureka moment. Um, at the time, it was kind of, it was just a casual throwaway comment. <laughs> but it was also, you know, it was kind of, oh, there's a gap in the market. Um, why is nobody doing this? Well, you know, I think on a daily basis, when you have an entrepreneurial mind, you spot a hundred of these things of every day. And yet it takes something to be able to jump at it. And it was, it took us many, many months, I think, before we realized that actually we had to be the ones to set this up. Um, we, we strongly believed at the time that there probably was something else out there. We just haven't found it yet. Uh, and so we did a lot of research to find out, you know, why is there no lower strength beer um, that's not non-alcoholic beer, that's not your kind of classic beer of 4 or 5%. Um, and... And also, and then that was when we really found out that there had been, there was this huge, very rich history of people drinking beer at 1% and 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was called small beer. And we, we kind of thought, well, I mean, surely we should be honouring small beer and its heritage by using that name, lending, you know, small beer has lent us that name, we've borrowed it. Um, and we can, we can use that uh, to, to sort of address... Um, this this new category within within the drinks industry, now An entirely new and a new beer. Sorry, uh, when you say they were drinking it, you're talking 18th century, so you must have done a lot of digging. Well, it was um, it, it's an interesting one. So uh, the small beer is actually referenced a number of times um, in the literature. So you, you find it in you find it in Shakespeare, you find it in Chaucer, you find it in Dickens. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing that it's, it's managed to find its way into our culture, into our, into our language um, in, in quite an ironic way, actually. Small beer tends to mean, you know, just the phrase, oh, it's, it's just small beer, means something that's sort of, you know, not of great importance. I've never heard that. Yeah. And so that was, that was almost, you know, sort of a tongue in cheek, you know, we're, we're kind of referencing this oh well it's this new concept i mean it's only a it's only a completely new uh category of drinks but hey you know it's just small beer um but also we knew that what we were creating was actually something of significance and and was quite special so but at the at the same time i think certainly in london um or in england as a whole there's an understanding that um of what small beer was people know for example that uh, before water was was potable, people used to drink beer. Um, what they don't necessarily always understand is that that beer wasn't four or five percent. And so there's this kind of belief that maybe everybody was just w- walking around completely drunk all the time. Well, that probably wasn't the case. I mean, certainly that there probably were some people who were walking around drunk all the time. But actually, uh, our our culture revolved around drinking small beer in the daytime. Uh, so literally everybody from school children right. right through to high society, uh, they were drinking small beer for hydration, but also for nutrition. Um, and so small beer contained, uh, you know, all these all these nutrients that you were getting from the grain, from the barley that goes into the beer. And so you're getting 
uh, B vitamins, you're getting iron, you're getting zinc, you're getting uh, magnesium, selenium. Selenium is this kind of wonder drug that, you know, actually people are taking selenium supplements now because it improves brain function. Yes, you're supposed to eat two Brazil nuts a day, but right? you get for exactly. selenium. So, well, I mean, there's no need to go into the Brazilian rainforest to find your nutrition. It's right in front of you. Why don't you just drink some small bit? So the um, there are... Uh, there are all these benefits of drinking small beer Um, but then on the weekends and in the evenings people would have had their stronger beer and actually small beer was never something that was made commercially Uh, it was made in the home um, and it would have been uh, it would have been a a recipe or a process that was passed down from uh, from generation to generation and so we don't actually find there aren't really many records or recipes, I guess. Being made, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is, there's one famous one that George Washington had his own recipe for making small beer. He had a particularly sweet tooth, so it contains lots of molasses and sugar. Um, but small beer tended to be something that was made almost as a means of, uh, or a measure of frugality. And so it was made at home, and it was often made as, a, as, a, as an end result or a byproduct of making bigger beer. So you would be brewing beer for your kind of for your weekend moments or your or your evening moments, sort of of the kind of four four five percent variety, and then you would reboil your mash. You would add in so you would add in more water and you'd and you'd boil up again, almost like taking the second runnings from a uh, from tea leaves mm-hmm. or, or coffee. Yeah. So you're getting this this weaker, um, more tannic uh, beer. So. It certainly wouldn't have tasted anything like the beer that we make today at Small Beer. Um, and and I think, in part, this is probably why it's not referenced so much in, 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 in the literature. It was this kind of necessity that you just drank Small Beer because you had to, because that's what, you know, it was, it was safe to drink. It was... Um, it would it would provide you with the things that you needed, but you didn't necessarily... It wasn't revered as this kind of wonder concoction. It was a little bit like... A sort of a porridge or a gruel mm-hmm. or, you know something that's like, kind of how I see it it right? was a staple of life mm-hmm. um, and so and staples don't often you know they're not often revered and yet they are so important to our lives and actually sometimes you know you want nothing more than to eat a bowl of porridge or, or, or a baked potato or, or some plain pasta mm-hmm. you know and it is just a beautiful thing um, and and I think sometimes you know, we go so far with food and then sometimes we just want to come back to what is what we know and, and, and what reminds us of our of our past and our you know and our childhood. Um, and that is that is also very much the the position that we've taken with beer. I think the craft brewing industry has given us all these crazy mad beers that, you know, absolutely um, are there to excite the senses, but sometimes also massively overpower the senses. That that experience that we wanted to capture was just that one of having a beautifully crisp, clean lager. You know, having a having a wonderful, um, uh, uh, simple pale ale with these kind of fantastic hoppy aromas. Having this kind of this rich dark chocolate and coffee note that you get with the with the dark lager, and having that kind of just the kind of robustness and the and the um, the complexity that you get from the steam that we produce. So those four styles uh, that we brew today, they're all very simple um, uh, renditions of, of 
very classic beer styles. We're not going out there to completely destroy people's palates, <laughs> which I think has just happened far too much uh, in in recent years. But anyway, that that sort of so. But this is all rooted in history, um, and yet what we do is we make small beer. You know, it's rooted in history, but it's made for today. Um, now, when, after doing all of this research mm. and putting it into practice, that's. Two, di- two different things. Totally, right? absolutely. So you thought you're onto something. Yeah. You know, we're sitting right here in the, in the beautiful distillery. Yeah. How long did this take? To, and, and what was the process to get it up and running? And this, this is a brewery, by the way. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I, you know, I have to keep that in. I thought you were putting me back in. No, no, back no, 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 no. Sorry, no, we're no, sitting no, no. in a beautiful brewery. Please don't take me back to the uh, no, 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 no. And no, anything. We're talking anything. only we're about small beer from, from here on in. No, we're so sitting we, here in this beautiful brewery. <laughs> so trying, we were, well, trying to make small beer. Absolutely. You know. Is so it the same process? Had, um, it is. <laughs> it's quite a different process. And it was a process that uh, there wasn't any prescriptive way of making small beer. Um in fact, the, the recipes and the processes, as I say, were, were very much, you know, didn't really exist in, in the literature. Um, the recipes that we can see uh, tell us that it was, it was pretty, pretty much a given that small beer was, was probably made around the kind of 1% or 2% mark um, in, in alcohol. And in fact, there's a very good reason for that. And that is that uh, around the 3% mark, so about 2.8% alcohol, you get this uh, this natural break, um, which is called the diuretic limit. So anything that you're drinking below three percent is, as you drink it, it hydrates you. Um, oh. Anything that you drink above three percent alcohol dehydrates you. And so this is why you're always told as a as a right. child, well, you know, if, when you start drinking wine, you should always drink water. You know, a glass of wine followed up with water. Oh. Who really does that? <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody does. And then, and then you wake up first thing in the morning with a massive headache, and you think, God, if only I'd had a pint of water before I went to bed. Small beer allows you to to have all that fun, to have the experience, and yet you wake up with a clear head. And that is the number one reason why it's just that you're not dehydrating as you drink. There's also, you know, you're not putting quite as much alcohol into your system, and so your your, your body can can break down the yeah. alcohol as you're drinking, rather than sort of rather than it building up into this sort of massive toxic mess. Um, but the uh, but the beauty is is that you're hydrating as you drink, and this is why it was important for our culture. It was important as a as, as a means of hydration. Um, but so for us, from there, we kind of. Yes, we had this very sort of the beginnings of an idea, but we were also running our day jobs and and our families. So we had this, you know, we were living this very, very fast-paced lifestyle. Uh, And yet we found the time on weekends we started brewing. Uh, So luckily, I mean, I built up my brewing kit. This was sort of, you know, I guess 12 years into my, you know, 10 or 12 years into my brewing uh, career and, and my experience of brewing. So I built up my brewing kit uh, by that stage um, into a sort of dedicated brewery at the end of my garden. Um, And so we started brewing uh, pretty much every weekend, uh, developing the recipes um, and the processes. 
Um, and the process is, is so important for us, actually, because the recipe alone, actually, if you look at our recipe today for making small beer, if any brewer walked in off the street and saw our recipe, they would say, yeah, that, that's a classic recipe for a beer of around the kind of 4 to 5% mark. So it doesn't show that we're making small beer from the recipe. We actually use the same amount of ingredients as you would do to make a much bigger beer, which seems kind of wasteful. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're not getting much alcohol out of it. So, so you know, why are you losing so much alcohol? Well, well, we don't. So what we do is we, rather than focusing on alcohol creation, which has been the, the kind of the thought process of brewers for hundreds of years, has all been brewers' efficiency. So brewers' efficiency, simply put, is trying to get as much alcohol as possible out of a certain amount of raw material. So in this case, malted barley. So you're taking the malted barley, you want to extract as much fermentable sugar from that barley as possible to convert into as much alcohol as possible. And that's what gives us, you know, the Budweiser's of of this world. So that's what gives you these these amazing uh, uh, feats of, of engineering where you get this, you know, these breweries can churn out this very alcoholic beer that tastes of very, very little. Um, what we've done is the exact opposite of that. So we're, we're getting as much flavor from the raw materials as possible, whilst maintaining uh, a controlled level of alcohol. And so, so that, that's what we realized very early on, was actually we needed lots of ingredients because we still wanted that same amount of flavor. Mm-hmm. And flavor doesn't come from nowhere. You have to put something in to get it. Uh, so we started um, brewing down at the end of the garden, um, creating, developing the recipe, developing the process, but then also at the same time developing a bit of a business plan because we kind of thought, you know what, this might, you know, something might come of this. And at some stage, if we really want to make this a reality, we're going to need a business plan. We're going to need to think about how we want to scale this up um, and where we might be able to get some investment. Uh, we realized very early on that actually to sustain this idea of small beer, we couldn't just release it as a tiny little brewery and grow organically because I think we were aware of now, you know, now thinking four or five years later, um, we now have really seen this huge shift in consumer mentality. People now are so much more aware of their health. Um, they're looking for vegan products. They're looking for gluten-free products. They're looking for low-calorie products. They're looking for low-alcohol products. Well, small beer ticks all for and sustainable boxes. and sustainable. Absolutely, right. yeah. Um, and so you tick all five. Oh, five of those boxes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly more more boxes to tick than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've you know I've mentioned selenium as one of them. You know, but there is <laughs> you, there are so so many the selenium box. <laughs> there, there are so many benefits. This right. is the problem: is that in some ways, in order to now understand how to tell the world about our product. We can't just go out there and tell them 100 great things about small beer. No one's going to sit there and read that or listen to you right. say that. Um, uh, I mean, hopefully your, your listeners will, have, will, will still be listening by this stage. Are you still listening? <laughs> um, but, the, but no, there, is a, uh, the, there are so many fantastic benefits and it's just a case of kind of understanding really how we can tap into people's... Um, into people's minds and just get them to understand that actually it's just about having a great beer. It's fantastic tasting beer. That is the number one thing. Oh, and it happens to just be a little bit lower in alcohol, so that means that you can wake up tomorrow morning with a clear head. 
you know, that's kind of, that's enough, you know, because as soon as you tell somebody that you're making a product that is low in alcohol, low in calories, low in, they just immediately assume that it's going to taste terrible. And they think it's going to be dull and watery. And that is just the absolute opposite of what we are doing. And so that kind of, that came to us very early on. We were sort of, we were realizing that actually there was a big shift in, in the kind of consumer mentality in the marketplace. People were really opening up to this idea of small beer. And it wasn't going to be such a big jump for them to, to kind of actually understand why they should be drinking small beer and, and, and why, why actually it could become part of everyday life again. I think, you know, for 100 years, we've, we have, uh, we've sort of lost the idea of small beer simply because we kind of thought, well, you know, drinking quality, uh, the, the, the quality of drinking water is good. You know, we can drink water now. We can drink Coca-Cola. We can drink all these fantastic things that we've just created in the last hundred years from nothing. And yet, I strongly believe that we were actually doing the right thing a hundred years ago. <laughs> so, um, so now it's sort of finding that the way back in to sort of get that back into our lives. Um, beer gives us something that so many of those other drinks don't give you. You know, it's not giving you tons of calories and caffeine and all this stuff it is giving you pure refreshment and i think you get refreshment from beer in a way that you get from no other liquid um it is it's so it has such a strong powerful effect in giving you that kind of amazing experience of just ah you know i remember moving to new york we stayed uh, for the first couple of months on on times square um in this building that had you know, the air conditioning was terrible. And it was the summer uh, of 2005 um, and, sorry, 2003. And it, it reached 100 degrees um, in New York. It was absolutely stinking hot. And, uh, and it was just so crowded. And I just remember getting back to the apartment and my, my mother opened up the, the fridge door and, and handed me a bottle of, uh, of Bex at the time as it happened. But that experience of refreshment that I got just in that moment of kind of listening to that cap, just just opening up and then just having that first sip of beer and you're just like, wow, you know, this is incredible. So anyway, so we got to the stage where we'd set up this business plan and we kind of thought, you know, to begin with, it was almost a bit of a joke. You know, was this really going to happen? And every day with more brewing and more research and more, uh, you know, developing this idea, all of a sudden it was becoming more and more of a reality. Uh, and at some stage we kind of thought, well, yeah, we're going to have to make this jump. And actually maybe we're going to have to start telling people about it. You know, it might be something that spreads beyond just us. We, we were keeping this this terrible secret and it was making me feel almost guilty you know you've kept this incredible thing to yourself I mean my neighbours are saying to me my neighbours who know me as the guy who smokes salmon in the house and then and then uh, you know puts up uh, salted salmon fillets on the washing line and hoses them down and they say what are you doing and I say well it's a it's a long story all of a sudden, I'm brewing beer literally on a weekly basis. And they're going, what are you doing? You know, what's the next project? What is, what's this all about? 
well, I can't really tell you. Well, can we taste it? No. <laughs> you know? And it was just this horrible experience of keeping this, this secret. Um, uh, one, one that I can only really sort of um, compare with, with the, the experience of knowing that you're about to propose to your wife, to your wife-to-be, um, you know, the only other secret that I've really kept in my entire life uh, for a couple of months. And that was, that was horrible as it was. But this was going on and on and on. Finally, we decided that we had to tell Sam and Fairfax, the founders of Sipsmith. So, so I met James working at Sipsmith. Mm-hmm. He was the head of sales. I was the head of operations. He had been there from, from day one. He'd grown up with the business. He understood how they had how they'd grown to that uh, to that level, and in fact, he was responsible for their growth. I mean, he was out there burning through shoe leather on a daily basis, speaking to every single bartender, um, every hotelier, every every single person on the streets of London, telling them the virtues of Sipsmith gin, and. I saw such a passion in this man, um, and I still, you know, I, I, I revere him. I think he's, a, he's such a fantastic person to work with. Um, but at the same time, he was also putting a lot of trust in me at the time. It was kind of, well, I'm really relying on you to come up with this, with this process, with this product. You know, he himself didn't have the experience mm-hmm. of brewing um, or the knowledge or the understanding. And so it was this kind of... This wonderful mix of the two. We are we're so different as people. Um, I'm very much more sort of process driven, and 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 I, I like to sit back and think about things, and, and I like to really you know make things perfect. That's kind of the that's the, the fundamental way in, in which I work. James is just so passionate and so full of fire, and he just runs at the speed of lightning, um, and so. So we, we just worked so together so well together. And I think, you know, initially, I think we were both thinking, you know, how are we ever going to work together and make this reality? But it has been, um, it has been an incredible few years of, of, of really, you know, of partnership. Um, and, and long may it continue. So that was, um, uh, that was a couple of years really in the making um, until the day where we, we had, we handed in our notices um, we we worked out our notices at, at, at Sipsmith whilst really progressing very very quickly with with the build. Um, so I had designed the entire brewery. Um, so the brewing kit was all my design. I designed it to make small beer and small beer alone. It was never really going to make anything else other than small beer, and it still hasn't got the capability to do that. It is specifically designed about around making small beer. We could use it maybe to make a 4 or 5% beer, but it would be like using the wrong screwdriver for the screw. It was, you know, it is so finely tuned to make small beer, to make beer around the kind of 2% mark. Um, And I think in that lies a huge amount of... um, you know, in that lies our, our potential as a business to to expand um, and to stay true to what we do. So, so there are other breweries now that we're aware of that started out making five and six percent beers. They ventured into the kind of three percent territory, and those three percent beers taste nowhere near as good as our two percent beer. And that just makes me, you know, it make, it makes me glad, but also. 
I'd like for there to be some other small beer because at the end of the day, we didn't make this stuff because we thought, oh, there's a gap in the market. Let's monetize it. We made small beer because we ourselves needed it. We wanted it to be a part of our lives. And so we would only be encouraged if other people were to join us in this space, in this new category, to create their own small beers. That's why, you know, we called our small beer the original small beer is because, yeah, we're the first ones here to do it. But if there are others, you know, forcing us on and actually becoming our competitors, that will only spur us on. Um, but also, you know, we can have a family of small beers and then maybe we could drink something else other than just our own beer all the time. So um, anyway, so a couple of years ago, we got the keys to this place. It was a it was a warehouse um, and it was had a cracked concrete floor, a leaking roof. It was not the place that we had sort of quite envisaged to make small beer, but it also had these beautiful skylights, this big open space. I mean, we were practically, we were knocking around in here. Two guys, um, you know, incredibly uh, excited, but also, you know, I think at the time we had no idea really what we were doing. Um, but we had uh, we had this phenomenal design that was in with the manufacturer um, and, and we'd placed our deposit for the brewery. Uh, so November 2017, the brewing kit arrived that all went in. We had two months of, of welding, of getting everything into place. I designed the brewery as a kind of 2D, um, almost like a tube map. And getting it all in and actually working out how it would work in 3D was a huge task, um, a huge feat of the mind. And uh, but, but we got there in the end. And we have um, we've been brewing now and, and developing and continuing to develop. We actually run a laboratory here where we have reduced our batch sizes. So on, on, a, on a large scale, we're brewing batches of 5,000 litres of beer um, in a single day. We're now, we've reduced our batch size on the development kit down to 250 millilitres so that we can produce as many of those as possible so that we know actually how we can develop the beer and how we can make it even better. So that's kind of, that's where we are today in terms of, the process but we're also uh, we're available now uh, in the entire country I mean as, as far as so we're in every single majestic wine store in the country um, we are just about to launch onto Ocado uh, we sell through our own website um, we uh, so very early days when we first launched into the market we were taken up by in fact our, our very first customer was the Savoy in London and so um and they, at the time, had just won uh, World's Best Bar. They are, you know, they really took on small beer as this incredible new innovation. And I think they, they, they have, they've looked after us along the way and they, they, they support us um, uh, so well. Uh, but that led to, you know, the Wolseley, Connell, Dorchester. Um, I mean... There are so many fantastic places in London that, that, that have really heralded small beer. Um, and then that led on to uh, the Old Vic and the National Theatre, the Royal Festival Hall, all these cultural spaces where you go and you want a beer, but then you don't want to be falling asleep during the show. Um, and so that that's really sort of given us a, 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 a real boost up. Um, but I think we don't want small beer to be an exclusive beer. 
We want beer to be, you know, small beer to be available to everybody. We want to make it part of our, our culture, our history, and, and, and sort of bring it back um, so, that, so that everybody can enjoy it. That's the key. Well, you've made me so thirsty. <laughs> Should we go and have a beer? Let's go have a beer. Thanks so much to Felix for inviting me to the Small Beer Brew Company's headquarters in London. Since we're talking beer here, there is no cocktail of the week, but Felix did get a chance to describe their beer selection to me in depth. So we produce a a beautiful classic Pilsner-style lager. Um, It is clean, it's crisp, it's refreshing. Uh, It has this fantastic floral continental aroma. Um, which comes from the Sartz hops. So these are hops that are grown in uh, the Czech Republic and they are the defining character of, of the Pilsner style. Um, this beer is here to, you know, it's, it's to refresh you. It pairs beautifully with food, um, particularly with fish dishes, but it is just the ultimate refreshment. Um, I was never a huge lager drinker uh, before small beer and now it is... You know, it's my number one beer. I drink it um, uh, most days. Um, then we have uh, the second in our range. We actually launched with this one as well, was our dark lager. Um, now, dark lager is really not a style that you find uh, in the UK so much at all. Um, we have a wonderful tradition of, of dark beers. And in fact, in London, 100 to 150 years ago, dark beer was pretty much all the be- you know, all the beer that you could buy was dark. Um, and I'm talking sort of black in colour. So we're looking at porters, stouts, milds, um, but a dark lager was not something that was, that was on the agenda um, back then. Um, it is a style that uh, you will find on the continent, although these ones will be much thicker, um, much meatier. We produce a, a dark lager which is clean, it's crisp. Uh, you can drink it on a hot summer's day. It's beautifully refreshing, and yet it has all of those... Uh, those flavours that you get from a dark beer. So from the darker malts, you're getting chocolate, coffee, toast, these kind of nutty flavours, and then just a little wisp of smoke that just leads you in for a little bit more. Um, It's beautifully velvety and luxurious, and yet it's not heavy. It's not a stout. Um, It's it's, it's much cleaner than that. Uh, And and that's certainly... It's always been... My favourite style of beer, and I, I insisted that when we start uh, when we start brewing small beer, we must have a dark lager on the menu. That one is only one percent in alcohol. Um, then last summer we launched a fantastic beer. Uh, this one was very much led by by James and his his love for the steam style of beer. So steam beer is a is a style that actually existed. Well, it, it, it was first created in Germany. Um, in the mid 1800s, um, it is a it's a it's a beer style that is complex. Um, so we we make it with rye, wheat, barley, and oats. So it has a real uh, complexity of flavour. Has a lot of uh, dimensions as you drink it, and yet we also then balance that complexity with with these uh, American hops, Chinook, that gives you this sort of uh, this grapefruit aroma, this kind of zesty, fresh flavour. Um, and and it's a it's a beautiful beautiful beer. Um, it's it's a rich red rye colour, um, and uh, and it goes down very very well with with meat dishes. Um, and then finally this this summer 
we've actually just launched um, Session Pale. So Session Pale is the fourth in our range. Uh, it is 2.5% in alcohol. Um, and it is, it is absolutely incredible when you first... When you first go into to taste Session Pale, you'll get all these beautiful uh, hoppy aromas, all these sort of tropical fruit notes, um, citrus fruits, uh, but then also pineapple and, and passion fruit. Um, but then that leads through to a roundness on the palate. It is an ale after all. We use an ale yeast to make it. Um, uh, it, it gets a slightly quicker fermentation. Um, it's, it's more lively. It has this beautiful thick white head. Um, and it is, uh, it, it's just, it's this kind of wonderful balance of, of intense bitterness from the hops, but then also the sweetness, um, and then this, this wonderful round uh, sensation in the mouth. Um, so that is, uh, that's, that's the four beers that we do. Of course, if you are looking for any cocktail recipes... You can find all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I was never a beer drinker, even in college. Then one day I found myself in Dusseldorf at a beer garden with a lager and a plate full of brown bread with schmaltz. And I have never tasted anything better in my life. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails and we can all be together talking on the flick.group slash lushlife app. It's free to join and works on Android or iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will forever be produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. Up and coming on Lush Life, we have a distiller who fell in love with rum at first sip. But how could she make it in the Colorado mountains? Until next time, bottoms up. <laughs>